0: Please take a moment to pray with me again before we begin in God's Word. God, again, we come to you, the Holy One of Scripture, the Holy One we've sung about this morning, and we humbly ask that you would reveal yourself to us in your Word. May our minds be clear, may our hearts be soft. I ask that you would use me as an imperfect but but useful tool to bring you glory this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we're starting a series in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet to Judah, the southern part of the ancient kingdom of Israel. He's one of what we call the major prophets. He's perhaps the major prophet. He's sometimes called the prince of prophets. It's one of the larger works of the Old Testament, His many prophecies, oracles, even poetry, have an epic quality. Makes me think of an Alfred Lord Tennyson, or Dostoevsky or Tolkien. His writings are quoted by the New Testament more than all of the rest of the Old Testament combined. This is a pivotal book. Isaiah lived and prophesied approximately 700-750 B.C., Before Christ. This covered the reign of five kings: Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. You've probably heard good things about him. And Manasseh, not so good things about him. And tradition holds that Isaiah was put to death by this last king, Manasseh, the wicked king, by being sawn in half, which may be what's referred to in Hebrews chapter 11. Our text for this morning, chapter 6 begins with the phrase, in the year King Isaiah died. Isaiah received a vision from the Lord, something that wasn't happening on earth. Some might think of it as a religious hype or fervor or just a very picturesque allegory, but Isaiah says this happened to him in real time and space. It was in the year King Isaiah died that he saw this vision. This was a real thing that was happening. Isaiah's writings are written to real people. The people of Judah of a long time ago, even their enemies, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt. I speak of real events that happen, but it's not a book about people. Isaiah is not about us. It's primarily about God. This is primarily a theological book. It's about who God is and what he thinks of his people, about who God is and his love for his people. and That's why we're looking at chapter six this morning. Chapters one through five are kind of an introduction where God, speaking through Isaiah, presents his opening case against his people. He said, you are a corrupt people. You have failed your covenant with me. And after five chapters of this, it's almost like God opens his door a crack to let anyone peek in on him who might be wondering Who is this God that would say these things, who would think this way of his people? Is this a God like the capricious and moody Canaanite gods? Is this a God like Moloch, who demands a sacrifice of children to be appeased? Is this a God like Marduk, the tricky king of Babylon, the God of magic? Or like Zeus, who is known for philandering, being unfaithful to his wife, who overthrew his own father to take the throne? Are these king's judgments fair? Is he a hypocrite? Who is this God who claims to be the one true God and sit on the throne of the universe? Through the eyes of Isaiah, we begin to get an answer. We'll see the Holy One reveals, judges, atones, and calls expand each of these ideas, we first see that this God chooses to make himself known. The Holy One reveals himself to us. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. We know that we are seeing the throne room of heaven. Isaiah sees the Lord on a throne. He is high and lifted up. This is the high king of heaven. He is attended by these mysterious creatures, the seraphim. These creatures give the first voice to who this God is. And they say he is a holy God. He is not capricious. He is not hypocritical. The first thing to describe this king is holy. Who is this king? The king is the holy one. This might sound repetitious, but it can't be said enough. The holy one is holy. What do we mean when we say He is holy. The seraphim described God as holy, holy, holy. In the ancient languages of the Bible, the repetition of a phrase or a word compounded its meaning. Jesus said, truly, truly. He said, this is truly true, so pay attention. In another prophecy, the phrase is used, gold, gold, which meant it's the purest of gold. It's it's gold and gold hear the seraphim say, holy, holy, holy. This is a super superlative. The holiest of the holiest of the holy. And this is pictured in the setting here. This is saying this throne is in the middle of the temple. We're told in the Old Testament temple, there was the outer court where general people had access and then you moved into a more restricted setting. It was called the holy place. And then you moved in even for, further to a more restrictive place, and that was called the Holy of Holies. And who sits on the throne in the Holy of Holies? The holy, holy, holy God. When we think of God's holiness, we often think first in terms of his moral purity. And we should. Moral purity is definitely in view here. These seraphim are literally called fiery ones, burning ones. and the Old Testament, fire is often pictured as this wrath of God directed against sin, against moral impurity. We also see it pictured later, we'll see Isaiah's response to God's holiness is guilt for his own moral impurity. But holiness speaks of more than just moral purity, as important as that is. Holiness has been described as the perfection of all of God's attributes. Not just his purity, but also the perfection of his love, the perfection of his wisdom, the perfection of his justice, all of his worthy attributes. And we think of God in those terms, in our limited ability to comprehend those terms, we get another angle on what is meant by the word holiness. God's holiness speaks of God's otherness. That God is other than we are. To be holy is to be set apart from something, to be separate. And God is completely set apart and separate and distinct from everything else that he has created. He's very other than we are. None of anything that he has created, is perfect in all of their attributes as he is. And again, we see this illustrated in the seraphim. We're told that they have six wings and they use two of them to fly. They use four of them just to cover themselves in humility. This is not a humility born of guilt. This is a humility by the fact that they are in the presence of someone who is so other than they are. They are not creatures that have fallen into sin. They're the fiery ones who burn against sin. But they themselves shield their eyes and feet from God. His holiness, his otherness is so weighty as to make them tremble in his presence. And like it causes them to sing the words that we've been reading, it caused the psalmist to say in Psalm 113, 5 and 6, Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on a high, who looks far down on the heavens, on the earth? Who is like our God? He is so completely distinct from us. We're also told by the seraphim that God is glorious. And I think that they mean here, I think scripture bears this out, this is another effect of God's holiness. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If God is intrinsically inherently holy, his glory is the, the radiance of that holiness. Who he is is shining out. It's that holiness interacting with his creation. It's like the sun is intrinsically massive and magnificently bright and hot. And we receive the glory of that we behold the glory from afar when we feel its warmth not today Uh, we see its light and we see by its light we are beholding the glory that is what we get to see we get to see the effects the radiance of God's glory as it interacts with creation and the seraphim say the whole earth is full of glory present tense right now Reminds us of Romans chapter 1. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. But yet, many look at this world and are not convinced that there is a God on the throne of the universe, much less humbled by him. And even we, who are convinced and believe and have given our lives to follow this God, we are sometimes not humbled, not nearly the way Isaiah is. Why? It's because we, as sinful men, have the perverse capability of seeing God's glory and ignoring it. Suppressing the truth that creation shouts to us. Instead of seeing the God who reveals himself to us in creation and in his word, we ignore him, we deny him, or we fashion our own God. One after our own likeness, the God we want to believe in. And this is no trite thing. It might sound modern and wise and tolerant and respectful to praise the many individual theologies of who God is. It might sound like a mark of spiritual maturity to be able to say, this is who I think God is. This is who God is to me. But frankly, it's blasphemy. God says who he is. God is his own interpreter. He's not accepting any submissions from us. We must remember this Holy One is not a Holy One in isolation. He is a Holy One who judges man. Verse four and five. The Foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, And I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Confronted with God's holiness, Isaiah is humbled. And that is too soft a word. But first, on the simplest level, He's confronted by the display of God's otherness. He is God and Isaiah is not. He is God and I am not. Isaiah understood humility in contrast with God and so must we. That humility is only the top layer of Isaiah's humility. He, he is shook to his bones with guilt. Isaiah understood guilt, and so must we. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. What caused him such fear? When the seraphim spoke the words, holy, 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 they're the ones speaking. God himself, the holy one on the throne, is not even doing anything. Just the seraphim speaking of God's holiness caused the foundations of the thresholds to shake and filled the house with smoke. This reminds us of Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Verse 18 says, Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. But it's not just God's presence that causes the shaking, causes the smoke. Remember, the fire is a picture of God's wrath. Psalm 18, verse 7 and 8, reminds us of that. Then the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also, the mountains, trembled and quaked, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. Hebrews 12:29 sums it up for us. Our God is a consuming fire. This wrath, though, is not the capricious, white-hot, temporary anger of a a God who's moody. This wrath is the perfection of God's attribute of justice. As J.I. Packer says, this is God's righteousness reacting against unrighteousness. Isaiah's, ours, Isaiah understands the equation. His sin, plus God's holiness, equals condemnation. And so he says, woe is me. It's not a word we often use, so we might not understand the, the weight of what he's saying there. Woe is me. He says, I am lost. Literally, I am cut off. I will be eternally excluded from God's presence. I'm removed and ineligible from any that God would welcome into his presence. That's what understanding our sin in light of God's holiness should lead us to believe. The weight of God's judgment comes with another layer. He says, not just that I am a man of unclean lips myself, but also I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah understands not just his own sin, but the broken world that he lives in, and so must we. And speaking of the sin of his people, Israel, Isaiah is not offering to, you know, pay for their sin, he's not offering to, he's not just confessing on their behalf. Paul said he would be willing to do that, but he couldn't. So, Isaiah is expressing at least two things. I think he's expressing fear and he's expressing pity when he says these words. He's expressing fear because he knows his people are evil and that he's too much like them, he's not more distinct from them. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips, I am a man of unclean lips. He has fear for himself, that he is not more unlike the darkness that is around him. He's also expressing pity for them. They're evil, but he loves them, and they will be judged by the Holy One. The Holy One judges man. When we look at our world, we must share these two thoughts. We live in a dark world, and it is getting darker. It's the very contrast to the light of the Holy One. We, we live in an age where we're being told right now the highest moral good is to declare for yourself what your identity is. To affirm everyone else who does that. We're told that right now teenagers are 300% more likely to identify transgender than Generation before them. This is getting darker. And this is high-handed rebellion. It's God's job to tell us who we are. We do not get to choose. We are being told that the most fundamental right of a human being right now is to determine that an unborn baby is not a human and to determine whether or not it lives This is darkness. This is evil. Again to Romans 1, verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. It sounds like our world. Americans aren't exactly inventing abortion or infanticide. That's been around for thousands of years. And in many cultures around the globe, but man, think of that as staggering. The numbers just in the US alone in the decades since abortion has been legalized are devastating enough. Sixty million. Sixty million. Do you know how many of the American how many of America's largest cities it would take to total that number of 60 million people, take our 85 largest cities. that's just America in the last 50 years. This is darkness. We're not exactly inventing this evil, but our world is inventing new ways to mainstream it and make it accessible and legal and to applaud it. The new laws in New York and Virginia that make abortion at any time in gestation for any reason legal and have raised the question what to do with a baby who's born alive that's not wanted. Last week, there was a law proposed that would make infanticide legal if a baby was born alive that was not wanted It was voted down. This is darkness. This is the darkening of the minds of our world, the base mind. Certainly not everything possible has been done to fight this evil, but in the face of decades of pro-life campaigns and pro-life judges and medical and scientific evidence, it's getting darker and darker. It's more entrenched now. This is not just a political issue, and this is not just something that can be solved by enough social media posts. The sin-sick mind does not listen to rational arguments. This doesn't mean that we don't do anything. Don't hear me saying that. But it means, first of all, that we should mourn. We should weep over these things. Woe are we that we are not more unlike them. And woe are the people that we live amongst. But thankfully, this text does not end with the word woe. So we see the Holy One atones for sin. Verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And look at this idea of atonement, guilt. I'm talking about guilt being removed, sin being paid for, forgiveness of sin. I want to look at three characters to help us understand what is meant here. In Isaiah's vision here, the seraphim is the servant that applies atonement to Isaiah. But this is only in service to the Holy One. He does not come as the burning one and cleanse Isaiah in his own holiness. He brings a coal, a hot coal from the altar, the altar where God's wrath is being poured out. It's so hot that the burning one has to use tongs just to touch this coal. And this picture of God's wrath against sin is applied to Isaiah's lips where he's focused on his guilt. And it results in the removal of his guilt, his atonement. We might expect, and I'm sure Isaiah thought this too, that God's wrath coming to him would have a different conclusion. His ruin, that he would be destroyed for his sin. But this is a part of the mystery of the gospel, the good news, that God, perfect in justice, can pour out his wrath and, in perfect mercy, forgive sin. How? How can God be just and declare sinners righteous? How can he be the just and the justifier of the ungodly? You have to take a step outside of this chapter to begin to answer that. At the beginning of chapter 6, God is described as high and lifted up. Isaiah speaks of someone else as being high and lifted up. Isaiah 52, verse 13, God says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. So there's a different servant than the seraphim. This is what Isaiah goes on to describe as the suffering servant. There's a lot more to say about that in chapter 53. We're going to be there in our Good Friday service. But note that this servant spoken of here, 52 verse 13, is spoken of in the same terms as God himself, the Holy One. He is high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The servant is God himself. He's high and lifted And lift it up. And he will be exalted by suffering, by absorbing the wrath of God against sin in himself so that sinners can be forgiven and God is still just. God is perfectly holy. A modern commentator, Chris Powers, says, ultimately it will be the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts, the one who humbles the seraphim with his beauty and terrifies Isaiah with his glory. He He will take away the guilt of his people and atone for their sins and he will do it by taking on flesh and blood and bearing their deserved punishment in his own body on the cross. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Isaiah had just a picture of it here with this coal and the seraph. We get to see the whole picture. But before we miss out, let me identify one more character in this text. Uzziah contrasted with Isaiah. We started with the phrase, in the year King Isaiah died. That's significant for another reason. It's because of how Isaiah died. Isaiah started as a good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, but he did not end well. In 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16 through 21, we see the story of how he did not end well. It says, when he was strong... He grew proud to his destruction. He entered the temple to burn incense on the altar. The problem was, though, that he was the king, he was not the priest. If you were with us last week, Psalm 110, Brandon reminded us, showed us that the role of king and priest in Israel were very distinct. That's why it was so significant that Jesus was after the pattern of Melchizedek the one who was not in the Levitical priesthood. He was rightly king and priest. So Jesus was rightly king and priest. Isaiah was not Melchizedek. He attempted to approach God on his own terms. He attempted to be his own priest, to bridge the gap between him and God in his own way. And when the rightful priest confronted him, he was angry and God struck him with leprosy. He lived out his days in isolation and died. In contrast, Isaiah is brought into the temple without ambition, even without his own initiative. And he's humbled by his sin, his need for atonement. He does not try to offer anything on his own to satisfy that. We dare not approach God with our own incense. Or we have more than leprosy to fear. We dare not come to God on our own terms. He sets the terms. But can I tell you, God's terms are so gracious, it's almost unfair. He asks nothing of you. No incense, no sacrifice that Jesus, other than what Jesus has already provided as the suffering servant. The only thing that you have to do is to come to the point that you cannot do anything to satisfy, to cover your sin. You have to know that atonement has to come from somewhere outside of you, and you have to find it in Jesus. Isaiah, now forgiven of his sin, then gets to hear from the Holy One himself, and the rest of the chapter is God pivoting and calling Isaiah into service. We see that the Holy One calls redeemed sinners. It's beyond our scope this morning to look at the rest of this chapter, but I would be or miss if I did not connect Isaiah's atonement with his call. Being forgiven, being saved, is not the end of the story. We were created and redeemed for a purpose. We were bought with a price. But also don't hear me say that the rest of the story is the most important part of the story. It's, It's not that, you know, Knowing who God is, knowing who we are, getting to the point of being saved, that's all past tense. And now we just need to focus on what God's purpose is for us now. Because our call, what we've been called to, what we've been redeemed for, our purpose is cruciform. This Latin word means it's cross shaped. Our purpose is defined and shaped by the cross. We're not just forgiven of sins. Which is the big story of the redemption of all time. We're not just forgiven of sins so that we can find our passion in a niche hobby or so that we can start a nonprofit organization that brings happiness to a corner of the world, as good as those things might be. We were redeemed so that we would live cross shaped lives. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, reminds us that he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who, for their sake, died and was raised. We live in the light of the crucified Jesus. I'm going to close in a moment with the song "Near the Cross." Let me illustrate why we should pray that. Even we're thinking about what we've been called to, what we're supposed to do now. Why should we say, "Keep me near the cross"? Isaiah began with God's holiness. This is the foundational, big-picture reality, the most significant truth that we know, who God is. And then he took us to understand who we are. We know who we are only under the umbrella of who God is. Then Isaiah introduced us to the gospel, the atonement. And from that flows Isaiah's call and us too, what we are supposed to do. God's holiness, who we are, the gospel, what we're supposed to do. This needs to be shuffled a little bit. What I mean by this, this is kind of chronological. This is the pattern of how it happened in Isaiah, and this is the pattern of how many of us come to faith. We come to know God for who he is, and then when we see ourselves for who we are, and then we hear the gospel, and then we know how to live our lives. But we understand the big picture Here We need to shuffle this a little bit. Because when we understand the gospel, when we apprehend it, when we own it as our own, it then reshapes who we are. We're not just sinners that stand under condemnation. It it tells us that we are redeemed and we're called for a purpose. It also focuses who we see God to be. We don't just look at God's attributes, but we see all that God wants to reveal, and it's focused in the gospel. Christ on the cross is the fullest manifestation of God's holiness and his wrath and his love and his mercy and his grace. The gospel focuses who God is to us. Excuse me. Let me visually reorient this for you, and I'll offer you a, a better visual than my own. Turn it on its side. give you this picture. We only know how we are to live when we know who we are. And we only know who we are when we see ourselves in the light of the gospel and in the light of who God is. We are to be people who continually behold God's glory in the cross of Jesus Christ and who see him in the perfection of all of his attributes. Jesus Keep us near the cross.